Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. The uh, Christmas story, as you know, is recorded in two different places in the Gospels. One of them is in Luke's Gospels, chapter 1 and 2. But we're going to be reading the Christmas story as it's presented in the book of Matthew, beginning at chapter number 2. Matthew's Gospel, chapter number 2. And I'm going to begin reading at verse number 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them, what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. When you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, this would imply perhaps that they never made it to Bethlehem's manger. And when they came into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. And was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. 
Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. And when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. At this time, we're very happy to have, I would say with us, but Michael, uh, you're with us? You're with us? What are you at here? So anyways, it is nice. We look uh, forward every year. Uh, the De Silva's do come down. This year, they can't be here physically at the building, but we are looking forward to what the Lord's going to say to us through our brother Michael De Silva Jr. So we're going to turn the meeting over to him at this time. Brother Michael, please. Okay, so here we go. Uh, this is a message that I've been studying personally this fall. Uh, it's not a subject that I've ever really studied on my own in any great detail. And actually, I haven't really heard very many people speak on it as the subject matter of a message uh, to a public audience, at least not very often. So I trust that the thoughts today would be of uh, spiritual help. I have found this to be an extremely uh, uh, helpful subject, but an extremely challenging one as well. But one that has been helping me, uh, I think the Holy Spirit has been using it as a guide and a help to uh, the responsibility I have to uh, reflect him uh, in my community and in the world. So I want to take the subject of justice from a biblical perspective. Uh, with so much unrest in our world, and you think of all the current events of the last year, uh, justice is a subject that usually comes up in most of these uh, storylines and issues. But very uh, often, we don't take a biblical perspective. When I say we, I mean the world at large. We don't take a true biblical perspective of what the subject means. Uh, advice from a CEO. There's a CEO that I know he's now retired, but he worked in the healthcare hospital environment for as a CEO for over 20 years. Uh, my father and I knew him as a business colleague. Uh, once he retired, uh, our local government, which um, has a lot of responsibility with all the hospitals in the region, this guy was sent to places that were in trouble after his retirement to basically fix them. They would fire the boards of directors they would put together a better uh, system. And he was part of that. And I, I still remember a very good piece of business advice that he gave me from those years. The business advice that he gave was, oftentimes you find yourself in a very awkward position, maybe a senior management meeting or a meeting at work where somebody comes to the meeting with a problem and then they ask you if you could help them with their problem. But a week later, after you take on the challenge, the problem becomes yours. And the person who passed it on to you, instead of worrying about it and working with you, they're not asking you why it hasn't been resolved. And so he, from his experience, he, in that setting, he kind of taught us uh, this important principle. He says, when people come to the table with a problem, he says, it's better to say, let me help you with your problem, instead of saying, let your problem be my problem. It's a really, really good piece of advice. It works really, really well in the business world. Unfortunately, it doesn't work in the Christian world because justice is all about letting someone else's problem become your problem. And of course, the greatest example of this is our Lord Jesus Christ. He made our problem his problem, and we see that in his suffering and death on the cross. So what is biblical justice? It's not a subject we often think about. I don't don't think we do, though it's, it's always there in the pages of scripture. Humans are held to a much higher moral standard than other forms of life because we were made in the image of God. 
take a panda. A panda has a set of twins. We know from human, from animal uh, um, world that a panda will oftentimes reject the one and will cleave to the other in order to, to ensure that one of them survives at the cost of the other. We don't say that a panda is unjust because a panda was not made in the image of God. We were made in the image of God. And that simply means that we were called upon to reflect the characteristics of God and use his power and authority as dominion and authority over his created world. And so we were called for that. We were made to be God's representatives on earth and to carry out his plan, abiding by the morals and concepts of justice that God himself abides by. And of course, justice is, is, a, is a, an important ingredient in that. And so according to God's definition of justice, all humans are equal. All humans are created in his image and all humans deserve to be treated with fairness and with respect. The biblical narrative tells us that with the introduction of sin, we see humans rejecting God's principles of justice and instead begin defining good and evil for themselves in a way that gives them advantages over others. This forms the foundation to idolatry and all idolatry from the pagan world to modern day Western society. All idolatry is a, an over improper emphasis of power, wealth or sex. And we see it permeating in not only every aspect of our culture, but you look back to Roman society and Greek society and you see it permeating there. Basically the way idolatry works, we were made to reflect the image of our creator. So in the form of the way idolatry is functioned is that we create a God of our own choosing so that we can reflect that God to the world. And the abuse of power and wealth and sex are the uh, vehicles by which we abuse the world for our own pleasure. And that, that is the, the height of what idolatry is. So the strong, in this scenario, the strong take advantage of the vulnerable, both at an individual level and at a societal level. And throughout all of this, the justice that God intended for humans to exhibit is nowhere to be found. And so as you follow, we're going to go through the biblical narrative here quite quickly. But as you go through the Genesis account, you go from the creation story and being made in the image of God to the Abraham story. Out of this terrible mess, God raises up a man named Abraham and positions him to start a new line of people with his family, one that is ruled by both righteousness and justice. And it's a really interesting story because you have the flood and then you have the Tower of Babel. And from the Tower of Babel, you have God uh, uh, dis, uh, uh, basically uh, uh, moving away from the nations of the world and, and giving them up to the sons of God. And through it all, God chooses this unlikely family, Ur of the Chaldees, uh, a man and his wife who can't even have children. And God says that from this one family, I will bring back the inheritance of all the nations. This is God's ultimate plan. And he does it through the story of Abraham. So righteousness and justice are two like sisters of each other in the word of God. And actually, just in the Hebrew scriptures alone, the word righteousness is found over 150 times. And yet it is something that we often don't think about or really define for ourselves. Righteousness refers to a state of moral good in which you treat those around you with decency and fairness, recognizing that all of them were made in the image of God, just like yourself. And the sister to righteousness is justice. The word justice or the subject of justice is, is used in the Hebrew scriptures, just Genesis to Malachi, over 400 times. Again, something that we don't often maybe use or think about, but the word of God is saturated in this all-important subject. 
Justice can be used to talk about retributive justice, which is when a person is punished for their wrongdoings. I steal $5, I pay a fine, or I go to prison. We understand that realm of justice, and that is usually how we fully define for ourselves what justice means. But most of the time, the Bible uses the word justice to refer to restorative justice. I think over 90% of the times that justice is used, it is not used in the context of retributive, what we think about. Someone did wrong, therefore they pay the price. 90% of the time, the subject of justice in the scriptures, this is just the Old Testament I'm referring to here so far, its focus is on restorative justice in which those who are unrightfully hurt or wronged are restored and given back what was taken from them. So taken this way, the combination of righteousness and justice that God dictates means a selfless way of life in which people do everything they can to ensure that others are treated well and injustices are remedied. And of course, one of the great examples of the Hebrew scriptures of this is the Exodus story. The, the story of the Exodus people. The Egyptians, I, I assume all of us know the story very well, the Egyptians were the oppressors and Israel had become the oppressed. And so God intervenes and brings both retributive and restorative justice. He brings retributive justice to the Egyptians for 400 years of slavery to the people of Israel. And we see it with all the plagues. We see it with Pharaoh hardening his heart every time. And we see that retributive justice carried out. I mean, Egypt goes from the greatest of its era to the ends of the plague and the death of the firstborn. They basically go to complete and total national destitution. So retributive justice occurs. But in the same token, Restorative justice takes place as well. Israel, after hundreds of years of bondage, they are released. And in fact, they receive all of their pensions. They receive all of their back pay. They receive all the wealth of Egypt and they leave the land of Egypt to go into the wilderness and ultimately the promised land. So we see both of them carried out. The Bible, many of its topics are, are, are navigated through attention. Many Christians argue about many theological subjects because they don't want to work in tension. They would rather work on a left or a right or a right or, or, or a left. They don't want to deal with the fact that many subjects in the word of God have tension to it. And justice is one of it. It includes both retributive and it includes restorative as well. So it is this story that the Hebrew scriptures in the Hebrew scriptures that becomes the advanced signpost and signpost basically means it's pointing forward. Uh, we didn't get the privilege to drive to Florida this year, but when we do, uh, we see the signposts and they keep telling us how close, how many miles till we get to the border. And, and uh, you know, it's exciting to get to your destination. The Hebrew scriptures are filled with many signposts and those advanced signposts are always pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, we point to Christ. They pointed to Christ. Everything about the word of God is Christ-centered. In fact, all bad theology is an overemphasis on people, groups, places, and things. All good theology is always centered on the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So when we look at this story from the advanced signpost and we look at Christ and we see him at the cross, we see at its fullest reality, retributive and restorative justice. And I love, as, as I was studying and navigating through this, I love this part of the study. Because as we look at the cross as Christians, or if you're, you're not saved, the cross is the, is the event that you, it, that you have to go to. It's the one you have to look at. When you come to the place called Calvary and you look at the sufferings of Christ, when you consider retributive justice, where was it meted out? 
Retributive justice was something that we as sinners deserved, and yet Christ as our substitute, he took it upon himself. One who could not sin, one who did not sin, and yet Peter said, became sin for us. So when we consider retributive justice, what we deserved was placed on a perfect substitute, and that was Christ himself. But what about restorative justice? It's often the the second aspect of it that maybe we don't think about in the gospel narrative, but it's just as equally important. Restorative justice is restoring back something that was taken away. Restorative justice is seen on the third day when Christ rises from the dead. Because the one who did not sin and could not sin, his body did not see corruption, and ultimately... Justice had to be served, and so we see it in the restorative justice of his, of his resurrection. To, so to those of us as the people of God today, when I look at the cross and I look at the story of salvation and the good news of God bringing his kingdom through the person of his son, I see retributive justice carried out in the sin that I deserved. It was placed on Jesus Christ. And the restorative justice that I come into the good of, I only come into the good of because it was the restorative justice that was due to Christ himself. So the the aspects of his death and his resurrection are key to the aspects of our salvation. And so justice, again, plays an integral role in the gospel story. Sadly, the oppressed oftentimes become the oppressors, and this is a real danger and a warning for us. And uh, this is where there is some practical application. So we're going to go through a number of Uh, key uh, scriptures. Remember, justice is referred to over 400 times just in the Hebrew scriptures, so we're only going to pinpoint a few, but just to uh, give us a sense of what the Word of God says concerning the subject. We start with the Kings, Proverbs 29 and 7. Good people care about justice for the poor, but the wicked are not concerned. So I would just ask the question, when you consider about the poor and vulnerable in your society, those in your community, we'll talk about those in your own family network or in your own church community, getting closer to home. Are we people that care about those in need around us? Or are we like the wicked? Do we have no concern? I think that's something that we need to think about because this is what the scriptures demand us to consider. Proverbs 31, 8 and 9, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are uh, destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Do we speak up? I'm talking about us as individuals here. We, we We are in a variety of communities in our week or in our year. Uh, communities locally in our neighborhood, in our business world and environment, in uh, the context and friends that we have, in our school environment, our church environment. You think of all of those environments. In each of them, there are likely those who are more vulnerable than yourself. And the question I will speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, because that's something that the word of God demands that the people of God exhibit. You go from the Kings, again, this is just a panoramic view. You look at the Psalms, Psalm 146. What does the psalmist say? The psalmist here is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to be Christ ones. We are to reflect the image of Christ in the world today as believers who have made him both Savior and Lord. He is not only the one who saved me, but he is master of my life. And what does the psalmist say long before his birth? He gives justice to the oppressed. That's the word. 
and food to the hungry. The Lord frees the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are weighed down. The Lord loves the godly. The Lord protects the foreigners amongst us. He cares for the orphans and widows, but he frustrates the plans of Christ himself exhibits, because this is what the psalmist is speaking of. You continue on into the, into the prophets, and you think of the words of Jeremiah. The prophets often spoke truth to power because the nation of Israel and then Judah, ultimately, they became like Egypt. They became the oppressed. The very thing that they received the restorative justice for, 400 years of slavery, they had now began in its full manifestation to exhibit. That's why Israel sometimes in scripture is referred to as Babylon. They're referred to as the rest of the nations, the ungodly. Why? Well, Jeremiah tells us, thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness. Why is the prophet telling them to do something they were always called to do from Abraham all the way down? Why, why would he have to speak in such a way? Because the nation and the people had turned from God and they began to be like the nations of the world, the very thing that they had been rescued from. And so the prophet says, do justice and righteousness. Deliver from the hand of the oppressor, him who has been robbed, and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, nor shed any innocent blood in this place. The trifacto of the vulnerable in the Old Testament is the description here, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. For us today, it includes that group, but it is extended to that. It includes anyone who is vulnerable, anyone who is disadvantaged, anyone who has less of a voice than you have. You have a responsibility to care and tend to their needs, to give them a voice and to sacrifice yourself to ensure that they are treated in the image of God as equals to everyone else within the community. Micah 6 and 8, famous uh, verse that we often quote and have on our wall. Oh, human, what does the Lord require of you? To act justly. The King James, it says to do justice. Justice isn't uh, the, 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 the judge. It's not always the picture of the judge who just meets it out and says, yes, this, this is your crime. No, you're, you're innocent. No, we are to do justice. It's an actual action. It is something that we are to do as God's people. And of course, tied to that is to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. I'm not here today to focus on the mercy and humility part. Uh, uh, excellent aspects to consider as well. But again, the, the focus today is just to look at this important subject of justice. And Micah reminds us here, as he reminded the people of his day, his nation, who weren't doing a, a good job of this, was to show justice and to act in a just manner. So what about our Lord Jesus Christ? That was the panoramic view of the Hebrew scriptures. Now we move into the New Testament. I, I use this subject here of king. You know, we often use the word Lord and we use the word Christ. And to a Jewish, into a Jewish world or to a Roman world, those two uh, descriptions, they bring a lot of weight and context to our understanding. To those of us today raised in uh, modern society, we might think of a king or a queen and that would be our height of monarchy and position and power. So for those of us today, Christ is our king. He is the king. He won't one day be the king. He was born king, and he will always be king. So when we think of him as Lord and master of our life, then we should uh, uh, heavily consider, obviously completely consider, what he uh, describes and, and uses as, as, uh, as it relates to this subject. One of the greatest injustices we succumb to individually today is self-righteousness, even as believers. 
the belief that we do not need the Lord Jesus, but are just good and right apart from ourselves. Let's not make the mistake in thinking that this is the mindset of a person outside of Christ only. Because before I was saved, this was my mindset, that I could be just or good or right apart from him. And when I gave up of all of these things as a young boy, then the gospel became relevant and understandable to me. And I could, I could come as I was and trust the Lord Jesus as my savior. But once we enter the door of salvation, I don't know what it is, but it's like a green light to, uh, uh, gets turned on. And the way we come, we then default back to the way we were. And we try to tell God that now we will prove to God how good of a Christian we can be. And in fact, that is a terrible injustice. It is injustice to Christ because Christ came to die for us, not only to rescue us from our sin as an event in life, but actually as a new beginning. The new birth is not just an event. It's a beginning. That's what it's all about. That's what the description is about. We are living a new life now. We are new creatures in Christ now, even though we are not what we will be. Both of those tensions are both actually equally true. So we can fail to see that the Lord Jesus is the righteous judge, judged in our place, even as Christians, for our own acts of injustice, including our marginalizing him by refusing to sense our need for him to remove our sin and make us whole. And that is why to the Christian life, he, he is not just our savior. Sometimes we preach the gospel in a way that it's all about savior, all about savior. Remember, he is savior and Lord. And Lord means master of my life. It means that everything I do is done through him and by his power, not done for him, for me to show him what I have now become. But it's actually the way I came is the way I live. And both of those are uniquely tied together. So only as we despair of ourselves and cling to Christ can we participate in this work of restoring lives, the church, and the world. We, the church, are to live now in light of Jesus's restitution of all things. So as we experience the wholeness that Jesus offers, we are to carry his justice forward in the world. Now, if you think that everything I've talked about so far, all the scriptural references refer to a time long ago in a land far away and doesn't have any relevance to those of us or to us today as Christians, then we haven't read our New Testament. Our New Testament is a reflection of our Old Testament. That is why it's important that we read it from cover to cover. James, the uh, apostle, speaks like a Hebrew prophet of old, and he denounces the oppression towards the poor. He saw church leaders favoring the rich and looking down on those that were less fortunate than themselves. And we have that in James 2, 1 to 3. James calls for the breaking down of these divisions as God seeks to renew his people, making them whole. Because in our default sinful nature, we will default to idolatry in every aspect of our life. And it doesn't take long before we find ourselves in positions of authority, whatever those positions are. I'll define them near the end of uh, some positions that we would hold of authority in the world today. And we get to these positions of authority and we begin to break down and we begin to become like our neighbor who doesn't have new birth, just like Israel began to look like the nations around them. This is the challenge of scripture. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be overcomers, but this is the great challenge that we deal with in a subject like this. The same problem of justice exists obviously today especially given the tendency in some Christian circles to downplay justice while highlighting personal morality, for example. Jesus rebuked this in the Pharisees, Matthew 23 and 23. He said, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees and uh, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, 
your mint, your deal, and your cumin. I mean, they were so good at following the law, they took it to a, a level even above the standard that was provided because they thought that if they did it all perfectly, they would invoke the coming of Messiah. And in fact, it had nothing to do with them. And Messiah came and they rejected him and they rejected his version of a kingdom. But when you think of the words that Jesus writes here, and he's, he's always compassionate to the vulnerable. Think about it. He's, he, he's compassionate to the, the woman at the well. He's compassionate to the woman who's caught in sin. He's compassionate to the man who was lowered down in the house where he was preaching. He's always compassionate to the vulnerable people. But to those who are in positions of power and are abusing that power, the Lord Jesus's version of love to them is a very aggressive, very forward, and very pointed attack at their sin. This here we can read as though it doesn't mean anything, but he says to them, you hypocrites, if I were to call you with all sincerity, a hypocrite, you would take offense to it. That's what the Lord Jesus is, is, is doing here. And he says to them, you're so good at even giving your tithe of your herb garden, your herb garden, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, or the King James says the more weightier matters of the law. And what examples did Jesus give? First one, justice, mercy, faithfulness. In our Christian walk, do we waste most of our time in church community and in our personal walk with the Lord? Is most of our time wasted focusing on mint, dill, and cumin? I'll leave it to you to think about. It's a personal uh, a comment for all of us or a personal subject to consider. Or do we consider the more weightier matters of scripture? How often do we consider justice, justice in our world and how we're reflecting the image of God in our community? Mercy, faithfulness. This is what it means to be a true image bearer. And this is what the Lord Jesus was highlighting to the Pharisees. Both individual transformation and uh, community transformation are part of restoring wholeness. While morality and immorality are birthed in the human heart, James 3, 10 to 18, justice is centered in God's heart. We are to purify our hearts whose desire leads to sin. But with transformed hearts, we are to extend God's justice in, in, in our sphere. Everyone looks at like, well, how is the government going to do it? Or how is, but that's not what God's called us to do. He's called us as individuals to show his image bearing uh, uh, characteristics. And to this subject of justice, how do we extend justice to the poor, the orphans, and the widows? And how do we do it by not showing partiality? In other words, how do we show kindness or how do we help those who are vulnerable? That's what the, the, the message, and that is what the scriptural theme is all about. These concerns are not limited to life within the church community, though I think it, it, it's an important aspect of it. And unhealthy Christian communities are those that I could tell you for certain uh, have a problem with justice. Uh, but it's not just in our Christian community. After all, how can we be salt and light if we practice justice amongst our own, but do not extend it to those outside the believing community? That's what the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7, was all about. The Lord Jesus said that even the Gentiles, the pagans, the, those who didn't worship Yahweh, the true God, they even knew to take care of their own. So if we think sometimes that all we need to do is take care of our own people, then we've missed again what salt and light are. You know, salt is a great preservative for the world and light is to shine in darkness. We were called to not just hide and cower in waiting for the moment where God's going to get us out of this horrible situation. We were called to actually be salt, preserve this world from its 
uh, awfulness by presenting the good news and also being a light to the dark world. So we were called to be very active, to be, uh, if I use the word of Paul, to be zealous. I mean, Paul was a zealous person. He had a zealous personality. And I think his, his greatest heroes of the Old Testament, if you study the letters, is probably Phineas and Elijah, because both of them were very zealous and thought they could, at times, they used violence as a, as a, as a way of showing that the zeal they had for God. The Apostle Paul, as Saul of Tarsus, he, that was his role models. That's exactly what he was doing to the church. He was just wrong with who he was persecuting. But I think we were all called to show that zeal for the Lord, and the aspect of justice should definitely be one of them. So in the Gospels, as well as the Acts, we see Christians ministering to the poor and marginalized, even challenging societal structures that weigh down on them. You see it in Matthew. You see it in, in the, the book of the Acts. Today, we have even more opportunities to extend and advance this restorative justice to our families, our church community, and the greater world around us. I think of this subject, and I'm nearing the end here of my message, uh, the post-Christian culture. You know, many skeptics view religion today as... Uh, divisive, uh, uh, painful, um, as a source of injustice. Why is that? You know, you look at the United States, Canada, you look at Great Britain, and we talk about this post-Christian culture. Where does it come from? Well, I, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to give you my own personal reflection on this and thoughts. Um, I've heard people, the common answer is, well, because the world's getting worse and the, the world doesn't love uh, the Lord, uh, doesn't love the gospel, I don't mean to burst anyone's bubble, if that's the bubble that you've been living in, but no one has loved the Lord Jesus Christ. The world has hated him since the very beginning. That's why they sent him to a cross. That, that is not why we live in a post-Christian culture. I think the number one reason why we live in a post-Christian culture is because we have generations of children that grew up and either went to Sunday schools or involved in church communities or in so-called so Christian homes. And the reflection of the image of God that they saw, they came to a conclusion that if that was the Jesus that came into the world, they wanted nothing to do with him. That's the conclusion I have for the post-Christian culture. The problem we have today and what we see today is that many people have a jaded view of what Christ and his kingdom and the gospel is really all about. And we were called in our community to reflect that. You want to see revival in the spirit of God work? It works by us reflecting the image of God again. James 1 and 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. I told you, James is like an Old Testament prophet, isn't he? To visit the orphans and the widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The kind of religion the Bible advocates is rooted in the justice that flows from the heart of God. It seeks to bring all things into the wholeness of God. As those justified by faith in the God of all justice, we are to experience the wholeness that he brings and extend it as citizens of his kingdom. As Revelation tells us, we are a royal priesthood, and we are to present that to the world. As I come to the end of the message, I just want to summarize. I don't want to give you too much in the way of application. Uh, I was reading a book right now, and it's got me thinking more. We often like to apply, 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 but most of the times when the scriptures were read in, in, the, in, the, in the Bible, when we read of it, the scripture was publicly read, and the people responded to it. And I would rather today have you think about the subject of righteousness and justice and the fact it is referred to so many times in scripture and have you think about it so that you can respond to it in your life, as opposed to just giving you the, the answers, because that's, that's really not the way to do it. It's for the spirit of God to work within us. So a way of summarizing this or a way of that has been a real help to me. 
We often think of righteousness and wickedness. It's referred to in the Psalms and in Proverbs uh, as a way of understanding and defining people that live in the world. And uh, I've used it to summarize this subject of justice and have us think about it this way. The righteous are those that disadvantage themselves for the sake of helping others. The wicked are those that disadvantage others for the sake of helping themselves. Which of the two do we reflect the image of? Because we were made to reflect the image of something. We either re reflect the image of the God of our own choosing, which is the subject of the wicked. We disadvantage others for the sake of helping ourselves. Or we reflect the image of God and the image of Christ in our world and in our community. And to do so comes at a heavy cost. Jesus termed it as carrying your own cross, following me. These are not easy terms for us to understand or for us to cope with. We definitely can't do it without the spirit of God within us. But are we the righteous who disadvantage themselves for the sake of helping others? I don't want to get into the great application, but just to apply it in a, in a bit of a practical way. In our families, husbands, wives, in that relationship structure, do we, do we disadvantage ourselves for the sake of helping our partner? Parents, grandparents, in our homes, our children are the vulnerable. They don't have the same voice as we do. They don't have the same authority as we do in the family unit. Do we disadvantage ourselves for the sake of helping them? Our church environment, elders, deacons, uh, senior saints, brothers and sisters, do we disadvantage ourselves for the sake of helping others, those who are less mature in our church community, those who don't know the Savior, who come and attend our, our, our church gatherings, uh, those who might have not have the same skills, the same finances, the same authority. Do we, in positions of authority, disadvantage ourselves for the sake of helping others? You can apply this to the business world, whatever position you hold in the business world, to your local community, to your school front. I think of, you know, teachers and nurses and doctors and business executives. Do we disadvantage ourselves for the sake of helping those who are vulnerable in our own community? Or are we like the world? Have we become like the, the neighborhood of unbelievers? Have we become just like them? Do we disadvantage others when we're in positions of authority for the sake of helping ourselves? I think this is a very, to me, this was a very useful and a very challenging subject. Uh, for me this fall, and one that I have failed a number of times, but this, this subject has allowed me to come back to its truth and to reapply it and to correct what needed to be corrected and to move forward in a way that better reflects the image of God around me. This is the Christmas season, and uh, Philip Yancey, this is uh, from, I think, his book, The Jesus I Never Knew. I took a screenshot of this because I thought it was a real good way to summarize the thoughts today. He writes, as I read the birth stories about Jesus, I cannot help but conclude that though the world may be tilted towards the rich and the powerful, God is tilted towards the underdog. Thank God for this, because as sinners, we were underdogs. And in his love and his mercy, he sent his son to take the retributive justice we deserved so that we could walk away today free with the restorative justice that is due to his son, 
the promise of new life and resurrection was just a down payment when Christ came out of the tomb that Sunday morning. It is the great promise and down payment that because he lives, we too will live. May God bless his word. I trust that uh, he will keep us and that he will challenge us with this all-important subject. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks for your kindness and your mercy to us. We think of this year of great challenge, and yet you have uh, turned it into uh, many different opportunities, one of which we're enjoying just now, and we give thanks for it. We think of the subject of righteousness and justice, how it permeates because it is the very essence and character of yourself. We think of how Amos could say, let justice flow like a river and righteousness like an unfailing stream. And we pray that as uh, believers, as the people of God here on earth today, called to reflect the image of God as men and women, that we would indeed in the communities that we live in, that we would speak for those who cannot speak, that we would be willing to disadvantage ourselves for the sake of others, uh, to bring the good news, to help those who are needy, and to do so with no other ulterior motive than to simply show our acts of worship and appreciation to a God who loved us and gave himself for us and to reflect his image and your image in the world so that others may see and know and understand who God and who the Lord Jesus really is. This is a great challenge and uh, we pray that the spirit of God would uh, give us and equip us with this important task, this vocation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.